Hey everyone, welcome to Base Cafe with Holly and Dean. We are here to bring you everything about bass. Yes, um, this podcast is in specific for bass players, but it's really for any kind of music lover or anyone who loves melody and just wants to get an understanding and hear about and uh, learn about some history. Yeah, we're going to talk about the history of bass and music. Uh, the history of mixing, the history of music production, and we're going to center that all kind of around the aspect of bass, uh, mainly because that's the the common uh, the commonality that Dean and I have is we both have been touring basses, so we want to to bring everyone um, kind of a bass specific YouTube series and have some fun with it. And in this episode in specific, we're going to find out why bass really is just so important. And for me, in my opinion, it's what makes the hip shake, you That's know, right. and uh, and we're going to go into a couple of those different points right now. Yeah. So let's start out with the history of bass. So as you can see here, I have my stand up and this has been this was the, the staple of the low end tone back in the days before the 50s. They would go to see a band and they would have usually a stand-up basis. In the 1950s, however, Leo Fender came out with this beauty, the electric bass. And it's very, very similar to um, the stand-up bass. It's just a lot smaller and obviously, uh, you know, the difference between or an acoustic guitar and a bass guitar, you know, the, it has um, electronics in it. So the reason they needed to do this was because what happened in the 50s is you had more of the, the rock and roll boom and the bands were getting louder. So the bands needed something to kind of push through with that low end. So they made an electric bass and put it through some ampli amplification. You can still find stand-ups now that have, um, that have pickups on them and you can plug them in and stuff. But it was very easy to run around on stage with this guy versus that guy so it was unless you're peter Steele. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah unless you're peter Steele, or if you're in one of those uh those one of those those big bands and they stand up on top of the the bass and stuff and do all that right stuff. the rockabilly bands the rockabilly yeah yeah and you so, know it's really the invention of the log by les paul right he's the guy who made electric guitars go electric you know yeah. or, or made guitars go electric rather the for a solid body and once they got solid body they could turn up because they didn't feed back right so bass had to do the same thing i guess yeah yeah you otherwise you'd be you know you wouldn't be able to hear the low end so um so then in the 60s and second 70s that's when music got even louder and you you had bands that were doing more metal and uh just more super rock and roll so you definitely had to have more amplification then so then you came into uh really big speakers and more speakers and more amps and <laughs> and festivals too right we definitely had like a pop-up of festivals in the 60s yeah. for massive groups and when you have that many people you have to be loud enough for everyone to hear it absolutely absolutely yeah and actually what's funny is now i went to because uh, we're in COVID days, I went to a Cypress Hill show and they had, uh, it was out at a parking lot. So everyone was turned up in their car, but I still just don't get, I don't want to be that far away from the speaker when I'm at a show, you know? Yeah, so, the whole objective uh, is to feel the bass in your chest. Right, right. And so the evolution of, you know, if you go back and look at the 60s, uh, like Woodstock, for instance, and you look at, uh, you know, they had a bunch of speakers up there, but they, everybody was so far away. Uh, so in just, the mud. Yeah, in the mud. So basically, concerts have really changed the way that we listen to music. Um, you know, they've really added a lot more. The way we've experienced. experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing that really has changed the way that we experience music is, is just the mixing and um, production of music in general you have analog versus digital and now it's mainly digital back then it was only analog and when i mean analog i mean this big guy right here this is a, a, a tape reel uh i recorded um a an ep on this uh several years ago with a band and um if you see on here it says uh 
clasp, clasp reel, because when we reported this back in, wow, 2013, that's what they had to um, go from tape to digital. They didn't have, um, they, you have, uh, I don't know about the programs now, if it, if it, I think it's still clasp, but um, you used to be able to only go from an analog uh, uh, tape machine and then you'd have to take it and process it separately, but now you can actually go from real to digital. Uh, but most people- Yeah, I never got a chance to do anything on a tape. Yeah, and what's crazy I is wish I did. nowadays, yeah. Other than nowadays, cassette tapes, you know. <laughs> and nowadays it's kind of obsolete. Nobody really thinks about it unless you're kind of an older school musician or you, you do come from that school of thought where where the live setting of, of taping a band was, you know, the tits. Well, uh, <laughs> I love that too, because when you record on tape versus digital, for anyone who doesn't know, right, you're going to warm up the sound and you're going to compress it. And that helps the bass come up. It helps the bass get heard in sections when it would be drowned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, though, everything has taken such a big turn into digital that you can create a lot of those sounds as well. So there's a lot of people who will say, you know, don't spend the money on tape, just go to digital and run it through certain analog processors, or you can uh, just add certain uh, inputs or, um, or, or plugins or anything on it that would help you with that sound. And it just depends on what you're going for. If you're going for like a pop sound, you probably won't want too much warmness in in that music but if you're going for a rock and roll sound definitely want some warmth in there and the great thing about tape is that most of the time when you record to tape you record with everyone you don't really record uh, you know section by section so if you're in a room full of your um, with your band and you're playing and you're getting that you're actually capturing that um, that live essence of, of recording which is also very sentimental to most musicians is I did do my first album that way. To digital? Um, uh, no, um, everyone all at once in one big room. And it was seven string metal and it was crazy. Um, it was it was so good. It was so good. Um, it was so comfortable. You know, in that band we had, we used to rehearse five times a week. So for us to have done it individually probably would have been harder. Mm -hmm. And our second album though we did one one person at a time we actually didn't even see each other in the studio so how did you feel about the differences between recording together and apart i'll tell you that recording apart we were tighter <laughs> um for sure um because you hear your mistakes versus um leaving those mistakes in right uh and that's another thing that happens when you go on tape right you can only record so oh, many times yeah, the tape gets thin, and unfortunately, well, I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, some people say it's really cool to be able to hear another song that was recorded very faintly. Because what happens with tape is it's all um, it's all a, a magnetic, it's all magnetic, right? So when you're magnetically changing the the, the tape itself, uh, you can still re-record over that. You can um, you can. Uh, uh, erase it and re-record over it, but you're going to hear, a, the, the thinner the tape gets, the, the more you're going to hear what was already processed on that tape. So in old records, you can actually go back and listen, um, and you can hear like faint, uh, faint, like kind of ghost songs in the background of other parts they recorded on there. Do you know that Aerosmith, uh, I forget what album it is, but there's a famous song where in the middle of the song, you can just hear a door close because they paid all this money for the studio. And they're like, well, if we're paying all this money for the studio, we want to like capture the essence of the studio. So they tracked the tape and they recorded it all night long just to get like the hum of the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a famous part like in a song where you just hear, I guess someone must have showed up in the middle of the night must have forgot their keys or something and then they slam you know they walk in and then they slam a door and it's in the song it's there you know like wouldn't happen digital that yeah, wouldn't have happened 
Not at all. Those little treasures are all throughout music history, and they would never happen if you just did digital. There's a uh, uh, speaking of bands, and this is probably great for um, a bass player's style of music. Uh, there's Stevens' Last Night in Town mm -hmm. by Ben Folds Five. Okay. In that song, uh, the whole band's playing in the singer's living room, and right in this break his phone rings <laughs> and it just happens to be in the same key as the song. So they left it in. Perfect. Right. You know, you get the, you get that cool stuff. You do get that cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and you don't get it when you record to this, this is, <laughs> this is uh, your digital hard drive. It's so funny. Cause I was just talking to um, my engineer that recorded both of these uh, uh, EPs and he was, he was telling me that he has my other hard drive so the the other thing that you have to worry about when you go and record analog versus digital is this you're gonna spend when I bought this this was in 2013 I bought this it was three hundred and sixty five dollars or three hundred and sixty something like that just for one and I we did five songs on this and barely made it Fast forward to when was this done? 2017, I think, four years later. Um, I switched to digital and I had to buy two of these and these are like a hundred and something a piece as well. But you need them. You really need to make sure that. And now, and the other thing that too is uh, very similar to, to the way recording technology went. Hard drive technologies used to be all disks and now they're solid state. Yeah. And you can get a lot more um faster speed you know better quality sound just yeah. by what hard drive you buy yeah and that's why... and if it's going to be cross-platform or not you know yeah and that's that's why this one in particular is what i was told to get by my engineer and i got two he has a backup and then i have this one um and it's important to do that's that good plan a back, backup of your of your music uh, if, if, if he ever wanted, if I ever wanted to, um, if I ever wanted to go back and redo this, I can't, you know, I just have this, this one, but because I have a backup of this music, if I lose this or say he lost his, I still have another one. Um, and even though this is a huge hard drive and it's really heavy, it still is very important to keep all of your, your music on one and you just kind of archive it and put it away. Um, you don't want to keep putting more music and more stuff on there. You want to keep, you want to really protect your music, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. And so, so you, you separate a lot by band. Like I always have band hard drives, right. Um, but on my own personal stuff, I mean, I have 8 billion hard drives, you know, yeah, I used yeah. to have these big hard drives now, now, nowadays with like my Mac, yeah. you get these little external, solid state terabyte drives and that's it you know? yeah I have, I have several of those as well um the, the thing about when you're mixing when you're producing music is you're going through a lot of processing power so you want to make sure that you have something that can can handle what you're doing and if you're doing say a 16 song record you're going to need as much space as possible right and that's where i totally think about solid state nowadays too because you could run anything off of it right yeah. but back in the day even with um, never you mind tape, right? Those spin up hard drives. You'd hear them spin up and sometimes I would even come through the music just like tape, you know? And again, those hard drives were basically almost a digital version of tape, you know, because they were just recording on that same disc over and over and over again. Yeah. yeah yep. and, and nowadays it's all zeros and ones. It's just information only information yeah and you can still capture a lot because you know microphones have come a long way as well um you can still roll as much tape as, or not tape but that's what we say because that's just how it's always been you can roll as much recording as you want um in a, in a session and, and add it in and everything and that's why it has come so far and that's the evolution of it is it what we used to have was so limited and now we have everything but we still want to keep that that uh serendipity of the the recording and uh, right the uh, the nostalgia the nostalgia of the recording yeah absolutely yeah
yeah and so did you ever find uh layer would like that you liked the way things were layered or would you layer less with tape right because how many tracks was that so with with uh with this tape in particular we had um you know we have a drummer with several mics and then we have a singer with uh, and, a, and she's a guitar player and I was a bass player and we had another guitar player so lots of stuff going on at once right and you're limited um, to the amount of tracks as to whatever mixer you have versus with digital stuff um you can have as many tracks as pro tools will load up yeah yeah and that's where the whole thing you know we're capturing the sound we're capturing our, ourselves as a live band I also enjoyed I'm um, pounding coffee during this since this is base cafe. It's base cafe. Um, I the last recordings I did uh, was with Zepparella, and we were doing a music video. Uh, so we do a song and then a music video. I think we did we did two songs and two music videos in one day. I think I can't remember. But anyways, um, when we're recording, we actually would play live and record that digitally, and then you'd go through each track. And, uh, you know, if I had to go over a part, then you could go back and, and, uh, and, you know, come back in where I need to or fix a part or whatnot. And, you know, that's another thing real quick, um, that just dawned on me, um, and all the times we've talked about all this is going from tape to digital, right? We definitely wound up getting more singles. Yeah. Cause we didn't, you know, you didn't have to worry about, well, I gotta, I gotta fill the tape. You know, I got, I bought this tape. I got to use it all right. You don't, you, can you imagine, I mean, this is tape in 2013 and how much did it cost back? back oh, in, the dude, in, in 2000, uh, in 2012, when I did my album, uh, we did not purchase the tape because it was more expensive than that actually. Yeah. Um, it was somewhere around that time where I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure. And people will probably comment on this, but I'm pretty confident in this where tape was at a loss and there wasn't, there weren't that many tape distributors until slash wanted to do his album. And he like bought up all these rolls of tape. And then all of a sudden with that came this insurgence of tape manufacturers starting up again, um, making it more accessible. And it's funny cause that's totally more accessible now in 2000, uh, 20 than it was in 2011 for sure. Yeah. You know, like it died out, but then like albums came back cause CDs died. So it's like, you know, when you record to tape, uh, it's better for a record too, because yeah. you're getting that natural compression. And like, that's one thing that some bands that I've been a part of, we've tracked albums, right. For CDs. But then some bands make cassettes or records from that same mix and you, you shouldn't and you can't because like it doesn't it's not mixed for that it's mixed for digital right yeah. and so when you take that and then you process it on the tape it'll probably make it uh, definitely makes it better for cassette tapes and for vinyls yeah yeah and there's also when you're recording and you're processing and reprocessing things or sending them and resending them you lose a lot of that quality as well i learned a lot about that working with chris bell uh when i was we were working on any of the records that i've worked on with him is you know he's very specific about where the digital print goes and where it ends up it's very important right to go off of what holly was saying earlier um the introduction of frets, right? So she talked a lot about how the bass itself evolved um, and how that changed people's approach. And I really wanted to expand on that because having the P bass, having frets added in um, gave us the availability to play in shapes, right? Versus by just having to know where to be by ear, right? We can play faster when we don't have to have that feedback. I can, I can look and see versus have to try and hear. Yeah. Right. Um, so the adding of that definitely added to musicians playing faster. Um, and then technology of frets, not only did we have the addition to frets, but the frets of yesteryear are not the frets of today. Nowadays we have 
plect frets where they're laser leveled. We have stainless steel frets. We have jumbo frets. We have small frets. We have mini frets. We have half fretless. We have, you know, like it, there's all of these crazy options um, that we have available. And then the quality of the wood, drying out the wood, all of this making an instrument be so precise mm -hmm. when it was put in your hands. Now, like you have that upright bass. Well, one of the most famous instruments that was made in that fashion, right, are um, Stradivarius's violins, the Stradivari violins, right? He handmade every single one of them. And the reason why that they were so valuable um, is because, you know, the meticulous detail that was taken into it. But you have to realize that every single one of those is going to be so different. And I'm sure that dude had a pile of blems, you know, as as big as Mount Everest. But um, but those are some of like the most precise instruments, and they were so unaffordable, right? To the point where now, if you have one, I have a what could be a, a Stradivarius uh, violin, but it's in a closet. It was found in an attic. It's probably not a real one, but it looks so old and relic that I love it. Um, but you had to spend so much money where now even even a hundred dollar starter base is so precise yeah so much better. so good sounding because of the technology in in finishes um like i said in drying of the woods the even the crap metal that they put on beginner instruments is still better quality than like like mid or top level metal of the 50s you know in in certain regards in certain regards steel was of a different you know nature back then it was a lot more pure um i like but, computers like you can walk around with something that is way more um it's way better than anything we would have ever used back when they first started <laughs> the first what was it it was the the first 256 megabyte hard drive used to have to be transported by a 747 <laughs> you know like you know it's it was crazy it's crazy um but yeah so just that the overall technology right the hardness of the metals the purity of the metals and then the invention of the internet where everyone can just go and troll everyone else about how you know this product that product how this spec is better than that spec and then all these companies morphed out of the evolution of the internet and that just that spreading of the knowledge right um so and then on top of all of that i know a dude who plays um cello in um in orchestras and he would tell me stories about spending four hundred dollars on a set of strings <laughs> for his cello and his upright basses and like he would buy some like 200 year old strings yeah right and i'm sure yeah that has a sound to it but nowadays they just they pump strings out yeah. right um the the invention of adding a truss rod in so we can have um you know these really tense tight strings um and then what quality those metals are made out of again we have all of these phosphor bronze we have uh steel core we have hex core we have round core we have round wound we have flat wound am i flat wound <laughs> yeah the, yeah right um we'll definitely oh go ahead no 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 go well we're gonna get into a lot more of that in another episode but it's true there's yeah i'm riffing i'm riffing i'm riffing i'm sorry it's okay don't worry <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, and then, and then the other thing what you said too, um, is analog versus digital, right? We went from tube to solid state and then we went from back to tube and then now we're in not just solid state, but we have like IR, right? Impulse response. And that's so important. That's the elitist move now. It's not even just having the, the latest quality and digital equipment, but now it's having you know, the most um, accurate sound because going, as we've discussed uh, several times on this so far, going from yesteryear's sound to today's sound 
we the process is different and we do lose information and you don't get the same sounds going from a tube amplifier into it or a solid state amplifier versus through a, an axe fx or gt1000 or a kemper you know yeah. it is different and impulse response really matters yeah. um and then on top of that you know the 60s the 70s and the 80s happened mm -hmm. and nowadays we don't just like you know either pluck or slap there's there's tapping you know with with the slapping there's uh hammer-ons pull off so again we adding in the frets to the bass we get all of these techniques that are just more easily available to pull off live and being an electric bass versus a stand-up bass right we get to move around if you look at the the video footage of me i'm all over the stage you know how much harder that would be if i had an upright you know yeah. like um yeah, we both have like this crazy stage presence where we're on one side of the stage and we're on the other side of the stage and yeah we can't really you can't do that with a stand-up i mean don't get me wrong i would whip that thing around like you know like nobody's business but <laughs> but even uh, even like this guy, I mean, this guy's heavy, you know, and you, I've played three, four hour shows with this one and it hurts your back. Like you have to be, you have to make sure that you're in shape as well. <laughs> right. And that's another addition to technology in the bass because back in the day finishes and the woods and everything used to be so heavy, right? Mm -hmm. Guitars and basses, everything used to be so heavy. My five strings, these two five strings that I have that I use when I play for Nita, um, I had uh, Ibanez BTB five string that I used to play in other bands. And with the finish on it, it was so heavy. And it was only 10 years older. You know, the, these, they don't have, they don't have much finish on them other than like the clear, right? Um, and the other one just had this thick, thick, transparent green yeah. on it. And I'll tell you, that makes your bases so heavy. And even this, like, and, and the addition to longer scale, like this, this is a 35 inch scale where, you know, fender bases um, were smaller scale. And then once bands started not only getting louder, right, they also started tuning down further and further and further. And the bass had to go with it. And with these short scale bases, unless we want strings this big around, we need to make that scale longer. So that added technology as well. And again, with the planing of the woods, with the qualities of the woods, you know, um, that allowed for the bass to evolve alongside the needs of current music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you can tell, I mean, the strings on these basses are pretty similar, but just the neck in general, um, and even on some of my other bases, just the neck will be thinner or th this is probably the thickest one that I have, but they'll be thinner. They'll be a little bit, uh, a little bit, um, shorter. Um, now the other very noticeable thing that I get to see from my perspective of you holding those two, it's like, try and hit the top note on that upright base yeah. and you got to reach around, like you're putting it in a headlock yeah. versus yeah that cut out and just sliding all the way up and just jumping up there, you know, like being able to be flashy, mm -hmm. you know, really opened up for us as, as bass. So, well, I was just expanding on the fact that we used to use all tube amplifiers to get our warmth, just, just like Holly used to do or told us about with tape, right? We would go and we would go for that warmth and go for that compression. And the same thing with all these amps. This right here, I know it's back here behind here, but this is an Ampeg SVT2 Pro. This amp right here has six tubes in it. Uh, sorry, six power tubes in it. It has 13 tubes. It has seven preamp tubes or something like that. It's crazy. Um, it's a beast. It's a beast. And uh, it's super heavy. And nowadays, I fly into gigs too, right? And this right here, this is like 80 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, I really don't remember how many tubes are in there. It might be like... I know for sure there's six power tubes. It might only be three preamp tubes, but all these things, man, they all, they're, they're heavy. They sit here, right? I have my Axe effects that I use 
for everything and digital, right? I not only do I have all of these amps, yeah, but I have all of the other amps possible. And it's in a 26 pound case that fits in an overhead. I would get a hernia. I could bring this on a plane and put it in the overhead, but I got news for you. If there was ever turbulence and that thing flew out, it oh. would kill someone. Yeah. It, you would you would be dead. Definitely. If my axe effects fell on anyone, even if it fell right on your face, you'd get a bump. Yeah, yeah. You know? My, uh, my amps have changed a lot over the years too. I don't have my solid state in here, but uh, I do have a solid state amp that I've, I've used for most of my my uh, my time being a bass player, but recently when I became part of Zepparella, uh, I purchased the hybrid uh, 800 bassman from uh, Fender, and it's tube and solid state. Right, only, solid state power amp, and then tube preamp. Only 15 pounds. Right, and, but I'll <laughs> listen. I'll tell you though, as much as I'll sit here and I'll be an advocate for technology and digital and and all that convenience when i get time and i plug in mm -hmm. to these things boy does it sound so good yeah <laughs> like boy did, like when you play on digital you can get used to it right but if you go back and then you just like get rid of your pedal board just take your guitar or your bass or you know, whatever your instrument is and just plug it into a nice tube amplifier and turn it up Marty McFly style. I don't care what it is. It just has this texture to it that and, and, and the way I view this with the digital amps, um, some are closer than others, but even in their best cases, um, they're never quite 100% of that sound. Yeah, You're always missing something. And that something is a tube. And that's, that's, that's what it's missing. It's, it's just missing the tube. And well, it's kind of explaining how filters work on pictures, right? So you take a selfie and you're like, Oh, I, it, it, it's fine. But I'd rather look a little bit, you know, a little different. And so you put a nice filter on there, like, Oh, that's bomb filter. That's a bomb selfie. You know, it's right. kind of the same thing for, for a guitar, you know, if you really want to have the correct tone you have to find that tone that's good for you and a lot of people especially in rock and roll music and metal we like that warm tone that we get from tubes right and but as bass players um the advantage we have over guitar players is when we play through a solid state bass amp it sounds awesome <laughs> and when a guitar player plays through a solid state guitar amp it doesn't sound awesome. It does not. Those high frequencies, they just... Yeah, they... When you have so much high frequency going on, your brain does not react the same way to it as a low frequency. And another thing, too, that's great about technology, there's like, there's Sansamps. You ever use a Sansamp? Yeah, actually, I need to get one. A good friend of mine told me about um, one a few years ago, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's actually what I need. And just haven't gotten one yet, but yeah. There's Sansamps, right? There's all that, uh, the dark glass technology. Yeah. Let me tell you, <laughs> they get some stuff speaking about analog and digital. The greatest example of a little tiny solid state piece of hardware that gives you all of those sounds that you want from a tube amp, anything dark glass. It's this big, you know, if you get the head and or it's this big and it's a it's a pedal and you can do either you can just take that pedal and go on the biggest stage or the smallest club or in your bedroom and you sound like a pro yeah how can you not be a better bass player nowadays when you have this stuff you know like how can it, you not you know you you teach and i also teach and i one of the first things I think we probably both go through with our students is when they're when they're signing up for lessons or they're trying to find their base or their you know their uh, what they want to to play on. You really have to talk to them about tone, and you have to make sure that they have 
they're going to be able to find the right tone because if you have a guitar and you don't like the tone, you're probably not going to want to play it. And so the good I, thing I, I will agree and disagree with that. I think we look at that like adults looking at children. I think that I played bass and guitar both on a metal zone for years and thought it sounded good. I <laughs> <laughs> just... I, I did it for a long time and I we all thought it sounded good and then I'm like I I won't touch a metal zone. I Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely there's definitely a thing called developing your ears and we're going to definitely talk about that later on when we talk about teaching and and what basis should be learning. But So you um you got a chance to ask one of your friends a couple of questions too to join us, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Chris Bell is one of the best engineers on the planet, in my opinion. <laughs> from what I've heard, from what I've heard. Yeah, he worked uh, with, I mean, he, he did the Eagles last record, and it was their best record they ever did, so that's nice. Um, Whoa, that's a lot, considering Hotel California. <laughs> I think that's all I have to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he worked with, um, he's worked with Destiny Child, he did their first record, Um he did all of uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd's music. Um, he's actually worked at Blade Studios, which is where I recorded uh, several uh, projects. In LA? And, no, this was in, in Shreveport. Oh, oh, Louisiana. So Shreveport, this is what happened. So I, I, oh, I, at that studio there, right by the Elvis statue? No. Oh, because no. I, I was there. One of my friends, we went to Shreveport. Um, they wanted to see uh, all the True Blood stuff. And like right in the center where they used to have that vampire bar, there's that awesome recording studio with the worst ever. If you ever go to Shreveport, they have the absolute worst ever example of an Elvis Presley statue. It is the ugliest, most disgusting example. And if Elvis looked like that, he would not have been on TV. Okay, well, perfect. <laughs> I'll have to go look next time I'm there. Now, this is out kind of more in the country. So Louisiana, I don't know if their laws have changed, but um, they passed legislation um, several years ago that if you were in the arts, because, you know, New Orleans is huge in the arts community and stuff, but yeah. if you were in the arts, then you were um, given certain uh, uh, tax discounts. So they built this multi-million dollar studio out there, and they were able to buy all of the equipment just off of what they saved, I guess. So <laughs> it worked out great. And yeah, well, I, when you do incentives like that for businesses, you know, um, it works out. Mm -hmm. And Kenny Wayne Shepherd's dad was um, a big part of this, uh, this, uh, this uh, studio. And you know, what's crazy What really crazy, uh, funny fact, you know, that song Susie Q? Yeah. Okay, I met Susie Q. She worked at the studio. Wow. She, this, this, right. actually, this song was actually written about a little girl. Oh, hi, this is Yoshi. Oh, hi, Yoshi. Yoshi's making an appearance. Do you <laughs> eat eggs? Huh? No, I was asking Yoshi if he ate eggs. He eats eggs. He does eat eggs sometimes. <laughs> He's hanging out with me today, so anyways, <laughs> he wanted some uh so at the studio the girl who runs the first front desk her name is Susie, and she was the little girl that Susie q was written about Susie q i didn't i didn't know Susie q was written about a little girl i mean was, i don't know i don't remember you know, it, it, like i always that. thought it was written about like a woman you know but it was, right. it was written about this little girl named Susie, and so they named her or they called her Susie q and that's how the song came out. So anyways, that was just really funny. I got to meet her. But anyway, so this this multi-million dollar studio, it's a wonderful studio. Really, really, really awesome. And Chris has been working with so many people there. Um, and I was able to record. They have analog. They have clasp. Um, and so I was able to record there. The studio has gone now. Um, and he's actually working out of his home studio. And then he rents out. Like everybody, because yeah. technology. Uh -huh. Well, on my on my second record I did with him, uh, the one where we did the, uh, the digital, we did all of the drums at this place called Firehouse Studios. And so it was this huge room and we were doing uh, when the levee breaks. So we wanted that huge, you know, drum sound. So right. We 
Florida's big studio. And uh, then we did everything else except for the guitars at his house. And then Gary Hoey did guitars and he just flew them in. So basically we're, uh, Chris was able to mix and master or mix everything at home. And then Gavin Larson mastered everything. Gavin's worked with like the Foo Fighters and those people. So <laughs> awesome. With the IMAX and all those people. So I just, I, I, I had all of these really, really awesome people working on my record. And so Chris, I've known for many years and yes, I definitely wanted to ask him some questions about what he, so you've been working with him for like a decade too, right? Yeah. Since 2013. So. All right. Wow. That's... Long, long time. Yeah. He's a very good friend of mine. Really awesome. Um, and, and he has just got one of the best ears that I know of in the business. And he's just a pro tools aficionado and so of course I always want to work with him. Um, and he just knows a lot about everything. Oops, sorry. <laughs> the dog is pushing up against the desk. Okay. Sam. Sorry. Okay, so she wants I, to be your co host. <laughs> yeah, she wants to be the co host. So I heard you got a chance to catch up with Chris and ask him a few questions. Yeah, so I wanted to know, since he has been at the forefront of the analog to digital uh, transition this whole time, he's been doing this for so many years, I wanted to know if he's satisfied with the evolution of how digital recording is, and also any reasons for not going back to recording analog. Right. So here's what he said about that. Not recording analog? I can give you about 500 reasons. But do I miss analog? I do. Um, I'll just say that, you know, I think ever since we went digital, all we keep doing is trying to get back to the same place where we left off, with, which was with analog. But with that being said, I think it's just more uh, time efficient, uh, easier on artist budgets. Sonically, I'm getting probably better sounds than I used to. I would say over the last few years, I'm, you know, I've, I've been at 96K since I started in digital, other than working on uh, like digital tape machines like the Sony 3324 or like, you know, D88s and stuff like that back when we first started switching over. But um, I think with the way the budgets are, they're, it's just not, doesn't make any sense to go to two inch anymore. Um, my old room in Louisiana with uh, Brady uh, at Blade Studios, we we had a system called Clasp um, where I could run a two inch reel in between the desk and the Pro Tools rig. So you could cap, it's kind of like a giant tape machine plug-in, but a real tape machine, which was great. I mean, cause then we would only need like two to three reels for a whole record you know just keep using it till it wears out um the last record i did on all analog was brian blade's record landmarks record it was a jazz record we did all the two inch track to half or mixed a half inch and uh sounded it did sound amazing but i mean a lot of that is the players but sonically i thought it was a really great sounding record and uh it did get nominated for a grammy so there is something to be said for that. But that was the last uh, all tape record I did. I mean, um, I think now with the higher sample rates and good clocking on a, on a nice rig with good converters, I think, I mean, I don't think uh, it's gonna hurt anything. I, I think uh, we've come to a point now where uh, I'm pretty satisfied with the mixes and the quality I'm getting off of the digital rig. I thought I would never say that, but um, I think it's, I think we're fine, you know. Um, it's so nice to get a professional's point of view on conversations that I've had with my friends for so many years, even in like in our garages and stuff. So, um, I heard you also had some other questions for him too, right? Yeah. I asked him being a professional engineer, um, what he looks for in a session bassist. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about that. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, no more than four strings. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I think the session bassist, uh, 
needs to have a good groove. Um, I think they need to really lock with the drummer. Uh, so I like what if I'm producing, um, I usually try to find a drummer and a bassist that uh, play together on a regular basis. So uh, that they're a, they're a unit that the drums and the bass are their own unit. That's because that's the foundation of the whole recording, um, especially on the low end. And uh, make sure the bassist is following the kick pattern. I mean, this is all, you know, standard things. Um, but yeah, uh, usually just somebody with a good groove and good feel and good musicality, just like any other musician. All right, so I also asked him um, where I, where he thinks the evolution of mixing and mastering is going to be in the next 10 years. Is it going to be at home rig studios all the way? Or are we going to see a difference in how we go to the studio and actually record and, and, and make our music? If we ever go to the studio again. Which is why this is an important topic and important question. I think everything's just going to be DIs and digital zeros and ones that's it but that's just me all right well let's listen to what chris has to say it's a good question hopefully we're making more money uh hopefully we we make more money off streaming i i mean i don't i don't really know in the next 10 years what's going to happen i bet i you know i still i the way i like to do a record is still go into the studio and have everybody in the same room together. I, that's just the way I've always worked. That's the way I think a record should be done. Um, I don't, I mean, I'd like the convenience of being able to send a session to a player and have them lay a part down at their house and send it back. But I don't feel like we really get the interaction or the everybody's locked together as a tight unit when they're not playing at the same time. So I, the way I know I'm still going to be making records in 10 years is still going to a studio and using a studio and have everybody in the same room. Um, one of my newer ideas is like right behind me, you can see a couple of racks of gear. Um, I'm creating a rig where I'm mobile. So I don't have the overhead of a brick and mortar because it's just not cost effective. And it's a, a studio is a horrible business plan. I mean, this is awful. You have millions of dollars worth of gear or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear. Uh, our last room, I mean, we had $600,000 worth of gear. And that has to get paid for. And the budgets right now just aren't big enough, I don't think, to sustain a large studio or the kind of studio that I'm used to working in. But um, I will still d definitely um, work in studios making records. I might take the project home to mix, but, uh, or we find a room like what I was mentioned earlier, we go find a sonically awesome space that we want to work in. That's inspiring to the musicians, inspiring to, you know, everybody in the project. And we record in that space and I bring all the gear in to make a record right now. I've been using, uh, these new Neve RMP D eight, converters and preamps so i have 24 channels of mobile class a neve preamps and a bunch of other pre's as well that i've previously owned and uh i think it's gonna be cool i'm we haven't done a project yet like that but that's on my to-do list next to see how that goes over like my idea is like we rent out either an Airbnb or uh find somewhere like in the mountains by the beach wherever and we live there and we take a month to make a record and take our time making a record. One of the biggest problems I've had in the, you know, the last 10 years, I think is we're always having to hurry because of the budget. And, you know, it used to be, we were going into the studio with uh, a huge budget. Um, I mean, they were kind of ridiculous how big they were, but, um, and most of the songs weren't even written yet it would be creating the songs. And I think that's how you would come up with some of those magic moments where it would probably would have never happened if everybody was already pre-rehearsed or with charts. Um, and I think some of the greatest records that have ever been made were done like that, um, where everything 
was done on the fly and you're like, wow, that was really cool or wow, that'll never happen twice, you know. Um, but so that's my next plan, I think, is to be mobile and make a record where the artist wants to make a record. Not They don't have to come to my studio or to a studio that I use or uh, we, we create a record wherever we want to make a record or whatever's inspiring to the artist. But uh, I guess that's that's all. That's all for me. Hope you're doing well, Holly. Uh, give me a shout. Talk soon. So this yeah. would be the first episode of Base Cafe with Holly and Dean, right? And we did it. We did it. Um, we actually had a lot more planned out on this, and we can just talk for hours. So some of the things we're just going to continue on in the next episode. So I can't wait to see you guys there. Holly, this is so much fun. Yeah, this is great. And, you know, Dean and I, we've been working on this for the past several months, trying to get just this step to uh, to come to fruition. Right, we're, we're here now. Like, we, we've spent countless hours emailing and texting and writing scripts and brainstorming. It's been a lot of work just to get to right here. So um, this is really cool. This is really cool. I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. And I think that we gave a lot of really good information. And I really hope that everyone takes this and they continue to listen to us. And if you have any questions or comments, please leave them below. We'd be more than happy to answer them. We're going to eventually in the future do a, a an entire Q&A session with everybody. And so we'll probably save some of those questions for then. And if we can get to you in the comments, then we'll do that as well. Yeah, and just keep your ear to the ground because this is going to be evolving as time goes on, just like the age-old base. You know, we are, as we get more comfortable and get to do all this other uh, interaction with people, we are going to branch out and give you guys as much information as, as possible. I do know that in some of the later episodes, we are going to have tabs. We are going to have instructional videos. Uh, it's just a process, you know, and we're just working through it. So um, I'm so happy. Um, Check out Dean Music Official on allthings.com, Instagram, Facebook. That's how you'd find me. You can reach out to me or comment below. Um, Holly and I are going to be doing this. And Holly? Yeah, mine is uh, at hollywestmusic.com. You can find everything there. And then all my handles are usually at hollywestmusic. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. Well, I'm Hollywest and I do music. <laughs> right. right. Um, thank you so much. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yeah, bye.